0: We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Mani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Mani. Also, I really, I don't know if you realize what we have in the Lending Library, but there are so many good resources there. Um, but what Henry was mentioning today as far as the, the new Heroes of the Faith series, uh, you know, Jim Elliott, uh, last night, uh, my family and I, we also saw, um, Was the brother that was uh, in Chariots of Fire? Eric, Eric Liddell. Um, I, every single one of these videos that I've seen, I've, I've just cried. I mean, they are just so powerful and, you know, I've been encouraging you guys. We've been talking about fasting uh, throughout the month of January and it's been a blessing. I, I've talked to some of you and you guys are joining us in that one, one meal a day as the Lord leads you and I could just really, I could just sense the Holy Spirit just doing such a mighty work. Um, and One of the things that we've also added to that at our house anyways is we're not watching anything on television. Unless it's edifying, uh, so we're we're watching a little bit of the news because my we like to watch the news, um, but other than that, nothing. Not even I Love Lucy, you know. Not even Leave It to Beaver. We've just been watching uh, things that are spiritually edifying, and I'm telling you this in the world that we live in. Uh, I don't know about your house, but in, even in my house, where we don't watch a lot of television, it's just transforming. And uh, we've been watching these videos just one after another, and it has been such a blessing. Not only is it a great uh, cartoon for you and your kids, but uh, in most of the DVDs they have documentaries where they actually go over the history of the individual that uh, it's uh, talking about. And so really encourage you guys uh, to pick that up if you can and uh, turn your television into a tool of edification. And uh, not just a waste of time, or even at times a tool of destruction. Okay, so um, let's open up our Bibles today to First Chronicles chapter 21. And I wanted to go through a couple of chapters because I really want to work my way through the Bible with you. But uh, this is such an important chapter that I really believe God wanted me to slow down and just go over this with you guys uh, today. Um, There's a lot of lessons here, and uh, you're going to see as you go through, I believe the Holy Spirit will emphasize certain things that He really wants you to hold on to. But um, there's a big lesson uh, that we'll see, and I'll mention that to you, and then I think by the end of the evening uh, God will just really solidify this chapter in our heart. Um, if you remember, and I do want to give you a little bit of background, David had just uh, you know, been used by God, his mighty men, his soldiers, to defeat the Philistines. And we talked about the difference between the Syrians and the Ammonites and the Philistines. I don't know if you guys remember or not, but I was kind of likening the Syrians to kind of like the battle against the flesh. And then maybe the Ammonites to the battle against the world. And then the Philistines to the battle against the devil. Now, um, you know, I'm not making some theological dogmatic statement. I, I am saying that within my heart, just kind of came that way to me. You guys know that you're battling your flesh, right? When you get all angry, that's you fighting your flesh. Or when you get all lustful, that's you fighting your flesh. And if you don't defeat yourself, you will lose. And and there's also the battle against the world and the influences of the world. In First John 5.19 says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so we've got the world, we've got the flesh, and we've got the enemy. You have demons. We have demons that are strategizing against us. And so we saw last week how even in those things, uh, uh, it will increase, the battle will increase. I mean, you're never going to really have the complete victory until you go home, but it's kind of like everything else in life. It's kind of like the the playoffs or the whatever, the baseball, the, the wrestling matches. In the tournaments, the farther you go, the more difficult it is, right? And uh, here we see that David had just defeated the giants, the Philistines, the demons, but guess who he's going to come up against now? The devil. The devil. Now, if the devil came against you, how would you do? What we're going to see today is Satan stood up against David, and David fell down before Satan. Satan. And there's a lesson here. There's a lesson here. Look what we read in in verse 1. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my lord, the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then does my lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Judah, Jerusalem. And then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he, he didn't count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he struck Israel. Now, if you're studying this, the parallel passage is in Second uh, Samuel chapter 24. And you can read the whole chapter, and it, it kind of goes in conjunction with this chapter. Now, the interesting thing is in 2 Samuel 24, it says this. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So 2 Samuel says it was the anger of the Lord that was aroused against the country. But here we read in verse 1 that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And you look at that, and some people might question it, but really what it is is kind of like peeling back things that we can't see. It's insight. It's illustration of the mysterious balance and cooperation between the perfect will and sovereignty of God and the free will and responsibility of man. Man is free. I want you guys to know this. You're not a robot. You're not set in fate. It's not like a destiny that you can't overcome. We're free. Satan is fighting. He's fighting. He's fighting. And God is on the throne. I know sometimes they're hard to reconcile, but what you have to see is this is the theology of the scriptures. There's God sitting on the throne. The nation of Israel were somehow in sin. And like sometimes we, you know, we just continue in our sin. Ain't no thing but a check and wing. It's been a week. It's been a month. It's been a year. You're getting away with it. You're not getting away with it. You want to know what you're doing? If you continue in your unrepentant sin, you are storing up wrath. It's building up and building up and building up. God right here, he was displeased with Israel. He was angry. And we're going to see he's going to chasten them. And part of what it should do in us, it should strike a a holy fear in us, a fear of God and and maybe even to a certain extent, a fear of Satan, you know. I mean, in a in a in a in a godly way, you know. You look at these things, and I know it's difficult to process, but we need to know that God can even use Satan Himself. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, I'm sure it was common that Satan was, you know, kind of pulling the strings, right? Um, but it's interesting when you read the Old Testament. Satan is really only explicitly mentioned four times. Uh, if you read. The story of uh, the you know the fall of man, as Satan is specifically mentioned. If you read uh, the story of Job, as Satan is specifically mentioned, and then another time in Zechariah chapter three, and then here, and, and so in one sense, you know, I don't know how it works. Uh, more than likely, Satan was sitting on his throne, but every once in a while, he stood up like right here he stood up and and when he stood up David fell down we have to be ready for this henry gave a, a really cool study on sunday about wearing your spiritual armor about knowing the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and if satan can't crush you as a as a roaring lion he'll come at you as a seductive snake we have to be ready. We have to put on the helmet of salvation and, you know, that assurance of salvation. And we have to put on this breastplate of righteousness imputed to us through Christ and imparted to us through Christ. And we have to gird our waist with truth and we have to put on those shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have to take up this sword of the spirit and the shield of faith with which we quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You need to put on your armor And I I like what Warren Wiersbe said, you put it on through prayer. I mean, before you go out into the day, before you face the devil who will defeat you every time, or any of his demons, you got to pray that armor on. And you got to put those things into practice. Otherwise, uh, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing to yourself. And you don't know what you're doing to the people around you. David here would would sin, and yes, God was angry with Israel, but there's no doubt about it that when you read the scripture, that David's sin did this to all these people. You know, if it was just me, that's not a big deal, I mean, as much. I mean, you know, uh, but if it's going to hurt my wife and it's going to hurt my kids it's going to hurt my family, if it's going to hurt this flock, that should move us, that should motivate us to walk in holiness, to be, to be seeking the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, to be fasting, to really be able to say with an honest heart, I am, I'm, I'm trying my best to walk in close fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now what we find right here is Satan was at work and um, it wasn't a, a suggestion like God talking to Satan, hey, will you do this? I'm sure it wasn't like that. I'm sure it was the other way around. I'm sure it was Satan talking to God like we read in the book of Job, remember? Uh, Satan went to God and he said, hey, this guy Job, he's right on, and the only reason he stirs you is because, man, you made everything hunky-dory for him. Let me, you know, get to his family. Let me get to his finances. Let me get to him physically. And watch, he'll curse you to your face. Satan had to ask God. You know, Satan had to ask Jesus. Jesus said, "Um, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. And so more than likely, Satan was... You know, saying, hey, can I, can I get this guy? Can I tempt him in this area? And what ends up happening is because of the fact that Israel was in sin, God said yes. And so while all this is happening, there's David, and, and Satan is allowed to tempt him. And it just so happens, that this particular temptation finds a place in David's heart, it, it takes root. And remember, it was right after victory. Sometimes, right after victory is when we're most susceptible, right? I mean, uh, something happened to David, and he's moved to do something that should never be done by the king of Israel, and that is to number the nation. He wanted to know how many, how many men do I have in my army? You know, how, how many men, how strong are, are, are we or am I? I mean, this is such a bad thing that even Joab fights it. You know, and Joab, you know, that guy wasn't Mr. Spiritual or anything. But even Joab said, No, you know, let it be a hundred times more. You know, but you know, David's word prevailed. David commands Joab to number the army from the north all the way to the south. You know, Joab says, Don't do it, David, you'll bring guilt in Israel. It was a clear warning, but you know, we know David's kingship was higher than Joab. And he went out and numbered all the men of Israel 20 years and above, maybe about to the age of 50, that were good to be part of the army, to swing that sword. And, and here's the thing, you guys. In, in one sense, it wasn't illegal uh, to take a census. But it had to be done according to the law laid down in the book of Exodus 30, 11 through 16. Um, It had to be something where they would send out the people, number them, in order to collect the annual temple tax. But here, uh, David's command wasn't to collect the annual temple tax. It was a military census to see how big his army was. And and I will say this, at the same time, there had been other military censuses in Israel, um, and the Lord hadn't judged the nation, if you read Numbers 1 and then again in Numbers 26. But here's the difference. Uh, the, those censuses were led by the Lord. And you want to know what we have right here? We have a combination of David with the devil. And that's not, that's not a good thing, right? Apparently David fell prey. Um, why would he number the people? Like for example, you know, a lot of times people ask me, Hey, Manny, how many people? And they'll say, you know, dumb things. They'll say dumb things. Sorry, I hope you never said this to me. <laughs> but they'll say, how many people go to your church? And you hear it in pastors' conferences, and it almost makes you want to vomit. Number one, it's not my church. This is not my church. This is Jesus' church. Right? So don't tell people how many people go to Greg Glory's church or Raul Reese's church. They would not want that. This is Jesus' church, number one. But number two, why are you asking? You know, why do you want to know how many people you know, come to the church, you know, 400, 500, it depends. If you're talking about Easter, you know, hey, I'll give you that figure. I kind of like that figure. Oh, well, they say that one-third of the church is absent every Sunday, so make sure you tack on an extra 30% to your figures. And, you know, it's, it's crazy. You know, and, you know, they'll send advertising, oh, 10,000, we have a church of 10,000 and 8,000. And only the Lord knows the motives. But why is that so important? It shouldn't be important, but you want to know what happens sometimes? It's pride. David let pride get the best of him. You know, pride is so dangerous for for both king and country. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, "There is perhaps not one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride." He said, "Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it." He said, "If it's still alive." He said, even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. You know, Warren Wiersbe called this a willful act of rebellion against God, and he said it was motivated by pride, and pride is number one on the list of sins that God hates, according to Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. William Barclay said, Pride is the ground in which all other sins grow, And the parent from which all other sins are birthed. You know what? We've got seventy-five people, forty people, thirty people, two people, one person is infinitely valuable to God. It should never be about numbers. Don't don't go that route. David was undoubtedly moved by pride. He also may have been moved by fear in all in all reality, because remember he just got done with this big you know victory against the Assyrians and the Ammonites and and you know maybe in the back of his mind he was thinking, well, what if they come against me again? What if uh, another army rises up? I wonder you know if I'll be able to pull it off again. It's funny how we can do that. And we had to be so careful, you know. Uh, Will we trust in our army? Or will we trust in the arm of the Lord? Will we trust in the size of our building or our body or our budget? Or will we trust in the Lord our God? You know, the Bible does say that some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. I will trust in my God. You want to know why? Because I know his name. I know my God's name. I know he's El Shaddai, God Almighty. I know my God's name. I know he's El Roi, the God who sees. I know he's El you know, Olam, the God eternal. I know he's Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. I know he's Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. I know he's Jesus, the Lord my salvation. I will trust in him. You know, this morning, uh, I was kind of going through my normal routine, which is, uh, number one, running late, okay? <laughs> so I was running late, and then I had this this amazing Manny uh, quotation. I say it every, every morning, where are my keys? Where are my keys? So I'm running late, <laughs> and I'm going throughout the house, where are my keys? Where are my keys? You know, 10 minutes later, I found them, uh, I hop in the truck, and... You know, I'm on my way to the office. And, and, and when I started studying again today, kind of getting into it, uh, I wasn't asking, where are my keys? I was asking, where is my trust? Where is my trust? You know, just like my keys, they had an accurate answer. So with your trust, there is an accurate answer. Seriously, what, who are you trusting in? You know, is it the numbers? Uh, for David, that's what it was. Okay, we have 1.1 million men, and we're good as long as the number of our enemies never exceeds 1.1 million men, and then that doesn't even count the others. And When in all reality, here's the, here's the truth. I want you to know this. For those of you who have a big, fat bank account, I want you to know this. In all reality, without God, we cannot win a single battle against a single soldier. doesn't matter how much men or money you have. And and, and with God, I want you to know this. We cannot lose a single battle. Never. We will not lose a single solitary battle with God. And do you know that? Do you know that for your family? Do you know that for the flock? Do you know that for the frustrations that you find yourself in? You know, David, don't become that kind of king. I mean, David, you're the one that slew Goliath. Even though you were outnumbered, so to speak, you know, he was uh, nine feet tall, you were only five feet at the time, and He was 400 pounds and you were, you know, 150 at best. And he had 10 weapons and you had one. And this was his thousandth battle and and this was your first. It was never about numbers. Why are you numbering the people now? You know, and again, I'm not saying you ignore all the numbers, but we must make sure we go to God first when it comes to numbers. Remember this. God is number one. You go to Him first. I think David fell prey to pride and he fell in fear. He told Joab to number the men, the uh, 1.57 million men. Hey, that's a pretty big army, David. That's a pretty big army. And, and you know, we can do the same thing. It's It's dumb, isn't it, you guys? How it can be dumb, like, you know, there's a lot of people you oversee at work. And you're over a lot of people. Wow, you're moving up, huh? Well, that's a lot of money you're making, six figures. Wow, that's pretty cool. There's a, that's a lot of people that are taking your class now. And you must be a pretty good teacher. Hey, that's a lot of people that got saved on the street when you went witnessing, or you gave the altar call. One hundred and thirty people went forward. Wow! And you, you know, you counted every one of them because you know every one of them counts, right? And that's a lot of people who attend the church you lead. And in all reality, you don't even need God. Well, you do, kind of like in the theological sense, but practically. You know, that pastor or that king might never spend another night in the right fight on their knees thanking God for what he's doing or asking God to keep doing what he's doing because he has so many people now and even more to keep him in that love-hate location of healthy desperation. You know, there's something about living paycheck to paycheck that keeps you on your knees. Now, I'm not telling you guys not to be good stewards, but I'm just saying there's a a good, healthy desperation that we need every once in a while. Just make sure your numbers don't make you numb uh, to the leading of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and what ends up happening is is you do the math because it's all about numbers, right? I mean, I wasn't good at math, but, you know, I think I, a lot of times I can fall prey to this. Lord, I'm, just to let you know, Lord, I am now 20 years old and I'm not married. I'm doing the numbers, Lord. <laughs> and I want you to know, Lord, the clock is ticking. <laughs> Be careful. Be careful of man's math. Don't misunderstand me. Administrators are necessary. Necessary mathematicians are good but remember they're not the final authority um you know jesus is i think andrew was an administrator and when you study the the ministry of jesus christ in john chapter six they had been doing the teaching and there was uh, i think five thousand men they didn't have anywhere to go everybody was going to be hungry jesus couldn't let them go because they might faint on the way to mcdonald's right and so what ends up happening is the uh, lord says okay well, we'll take care of this we'll feed them Lord, there's 5,000 men plus women and children. We can't do this, right? Andrew was the mathematician. Andrew was the one who came up to Jesus in John 6 and verse 8. And he he, he was uh, Simon Peter's brother. And he said to him, well, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? And it's true. What are they among so many? But I have another question for you. What are they in the hands of Jesus Christ? Right? And so Andrew was a mathematician, and Jesus was the Messiah. And you want to know something? The Messiah is in our corner, God's on our side. I mean, haven't you heard? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, what if I sin? What if I mess up? You want to know something? He's still for you. He's the God of the second chance. He's the God of grace. He's a wonderful God. I mean, He'll chasten us and He'll deal with us. But we're going to learn tonight, if we get our life right with the Lord, it's just so cool to see what He ends up doing Now make no mistake about it, God is displeased when our trust is misplaced. And so we read there in verse 7, God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly, because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And so, you know, David, you know, realizes that he's done wrong after Israel gets struck, right? And we don't know all the details because there are going to be more chastening that's going to take place. But somehow, you know, the Lord uh, struck Israel, probably the plague. It's probably the same thing we're going to see later but here's the thing, you guys, that David got convicted of his sin. Notice what he says there in verse 8, and I have this highlighted in my Bible I have sinned greatly. I have sinned greatly. That was the difference between David and Saul, huh? You want to know what most Christians do? They make excuses. That's what, they're so good. It's an excuses or a reason stuff with a lie, right? Rather than saying, I have sinned. When David was caught in adultery with Bathsheba, he said, I have sinned. Right here, when he numbers the people, he adds a word, I have sinned greatly. There's a lesson here for leaders. You know, sometimes I think leaders think, well, you know, I'm here and the people can kind of serve me and, you know, I can, whatever, call the shots. But really, with the title and the position, there's more responsibility. There's more accountability. And David here, with Bathsheba, he sinned. And yes, there's probably about six or seven people that died. This time, he said, I sinned greatly. Because 70,000 people will die. And so if you're in a position of leadership, and a lot of people, they say, I want to be a leader. You want to be a leader? Then just make sure you know what you're getting into. It's a heavy responsibility that someone should never take unto themselves lest they're called by God. Truly called by God. And so David was convicted, and uh, you know the Lord does such a, a good work. I, I praise God for that conviction, because that conviction led to confession, right? He said, "I have sinned greatly, and that's what it's supposed to do in our life. A conviction should lead to confession, first uh, John one nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." When was the last time you confessed your sins? You know, sometimes uh, people often ask us if they still need to go to confession. And my answer is, well, you don't need to go to the man, you don't need to go to a priest, but you still need to go to confession. You need to go to God, and you need to confess those sins, right? Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen it teaches us, the total truth. It says, he who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And that's what David did. It was a victory that David convicted, was convicted of his sin. It was a victory that David confessed his sin. But it was still a tragedy that David committed his sin. Because conviction and confession do lead to cleansing, but they don't eliminate the consequences. So think about that next time you go into sin with eyes wide open. Yeah, God will forgive us and God will cleanse us. But man, are you willing to pay the consequences for that? The Bible says in Proverbs 22.3 that a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. You know, thank God. You know, aren't you guys grateful that Jesus has taken the full force of the just judgment for our sins? And I'm just so grateful for that. But we need to know that there are still consequences, even for Christians. What does the Bible say uh, whatever we we sow, we'll reap, huh? I mean, that's the law of the Lord. That's the law of this land. There's a, an interesting passage in Psalm 99, verse 8. Maybe you can write it down and, and just meditate on it later. This is what it says. It says, you answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deed. God forgave, but there were still consequences. It hurts us. It hurts those around us. It hurts those whom we're responsible for because it's a heavy responsibility that we have. You know, and looking at this, we see what happens after David asks for personal forgiveness. Then God sends the prophet Gad. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you or else for three days The sword of the Lord, the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord, destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. I mean, he was sweating bullets. I mean, he's like, man, please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man kind of funny I mean think about it God says okay you you guys I'm gonna give you a trancaso right did you guys ever do that with your kids you're giving them options you know okay you can do this this or this you know God does it and it's not an easy choice uh, three years of famine so David's thinking that one through and he's thinking man all the rich people are probably going to be okay it's the support people that will suffer now I don't think I want that well, how about three months of uh, you know, your enemies and the battle against your enemies? And David's thinking, again, and again, I'm not sure, you know, but maybe he's thinking, well, he's gonna, they're going to wipe out my army. All my soldiers are going to die. We're not going to have a defense for our country at all. And then the third option is three days of, of plague, pestilence, where a disease comes in and spreads rapidly and kills many. But the thing about it is that he says, but that one is going to be monitored completely by the Lord. There will be no human mediators in that one. And so David, he chose the latter one. He chose the third one. You know, in, in kind of like in an ironic way, God says, you choose how you're going to lose. And David says, okay, I choose the plague in God's providence because he didn't want in any way to fall into the hands of fallen men. And so uh, we read in verse 14, the Lord sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Remember we read back in second samuel twenty four in verse one that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, right, and so God grants Satan his requests, he moves David to number the people that brings the chastening of the Lord upon the country, and seventy thousand men die. You know God needed to discipline his people, he needed to awaken his people. He needed to shake things up, you know, in order to bring them back to himself. You know, and that's, I, I don't know about you guys. I, I know that the Lord does that to me every once in a while. He shakes things up or he gives me a spanking or a trancaso, some type of discipline. You know, just to bring me back to that place where... I'm, I'm no longer, like, just a casual Christian. I, I, you know, I'm not just kind of lackadaisical in my prayer life or my commitment to Him and my desire to really walk in holiness and not sin, to to really hate sin. You know, God will shake things up to bring us to that place, and that's what He's doing to the people that He loves, right? It's not just about God getting mad. It's not just about God's anger, It's about God's love. Whomever the Lord loves, He what? He chastens. He loves His people. And He said, I want you to be in the right relationship with Me. And so it's just amazing when you see all these different things working simultaneously. God needed to discipline His people. 70,000 men died the Lord sent a plague, an infectious disease that spreads rapidly and kills many people. I was looking up online on some of the different plagues throughout history. I'm sure you guys have seen something like the bubonic plague and the Black Death. And it's just crazy, some of the things that can happen. And while that's happening, however, it's like, you know, there's an opening in the heavens. And we get a glimpse into the angelic realm. And while all these things are happening, it's crazy, man. There's this angel of the Lord None other than Jesus Christ himself, right? And he's got this sword and, and he's just got it drawn over Jerusalem, right? And we get a glimpse into that, right? The power of God, the plague of God, the hand of God, even the holiness of God. And, and you, you know, you got to be able to see those things that we didn't wrestle, not against flesh and blood. You know, this uh, thing's going on with Islam. You know, this is a spiritual battle, how are you fighting? Are you fighting? You know, it's not just in France. I mean, it's here in Almani. David was telling me about his nephew who has a homework assignment, and the teacher's telling him that, you know, Allah's God and Muhammad's his prophet. I'm like, what's this, you know, seventh grader studying Islam for? You want to know why? Because the enemy is using all of these things in this spiritual battle that we're in. I mean, and so it's, it's, I think God is just saying, okay, well, you know, I don't know if you care, but people are dying. And, and the enemy is trying to sweep your country away. And while these fundamental Muslims, they're not radical Muslims, they're fundamental Muslims, they just take the Quran literally, like we take our Bible literally, as they're there doing their thing, what is, what is our country doing? Because they have no spiritual perception whatsoever. They're blind as bats. They're dead in their sins. What are they doing? They're taking these opportunities to say, oh, you know, Islam is a friendly religion. Come on, don't overreact. As a matter of fact, let's put it into our curriculum. It's a spiritual battle. This is exactly what we see happening. The enemy here is, is, you know, we have to be able to see, we have to get a glimpse of what's really going on. Now, for us, we might not see an angel, but I'll see the Prince of Persia. And I'll see the, the, the demons that we're fighting. I'm no match for them, but they're no match for my Jesus. And I will, I, I will access the power of the Holy Spirit when I no longer doubt, and when I no longer disobey, then I will walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we'll be able to take some of these demons down. Jesus said, "This kind doesn't come out except through prayer and fasting. Well, the church doesn't want to fast because they, you know, they like their whoppers. And God is just calling us to that place. You know, give me my MTV. I don't know if they still say that. They said that when I was a kid, you know. No, you turn that TV into a tool of edification. And you get on your knees and you pray. When David saw this whole thing, I love what we read right here. Look what it says in verse 16. So David and the elders clothed in sackcloth, they fell on their faces. When was the last time you fell on your face? Well, you're like, the other day I tripped. No, I'm not talking about that, okay? (laughs) I'm talking about real serious, heartfelt, crying out to God in desperation prayer. David does this, and, you know, God responds. God hears. It says in verse 18, Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, David. That David should go and erect an altar to the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. (coughs) But Ornan continued threshing wheat. And so David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. And then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, Take it to yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offering and the threshing implements for Wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. And so David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. And David built an altar there to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. And notice verse 27. So the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword to its sheath. When did he put his sword away? After David offered the sacrifices, huh? You know, God says, okay, David, I see you guys praying. And you're on your face. This is what you need to do. You need to go and you need to get this land. You need to build an altar there. And you need to offer sacrifices because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Right? And so David goes. And when he gets there, Ornan, he's a Jebusite. Those were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. You know, he was still lingering there, obviously. God says, hey, you know... Um, go get this land, Ornan says, well, David, you don't have to buy it, man. I'll I'll cut you a deal. You know, I'll give it to you for free, right? And David says, no, I'm going to pay full price. That's why some people believe maybe he wasn't Jewish after all. No, I'm just joking, I'm just joking. No, he was Jewish, okay? (laughs) No, he says, no, I'm going to pay full price. He says, I I won't offer to the Lord That which costs me nothing. And I think some people are like that. You know, they want to kind of get a deal with God. And God is just saying, no. Let me tell you something here. The measure of the ministry is sacrifice. Some people believe the measure of the ministry is how big is your building, how big is your body, and how big is your budget. Not in God's eyes. The measure of the ministry is Is sacrifice. Remember that. And remember this. Ministry that costs nothing. Accomplishes nothing. And that's a principle of the scripture. And you know some people they don't want to make the sacrifice. And they'll all show up if it's convenient. If I'm feeling 100%. And like everything's you know a great day. and, And yet you're scheduled to serve that day. And it seems like a lot of times there's not that mentality. Like when I got saved, there was just a mentality that says, I'm willing to lay down my life. David here, obviously, ultimately is a picture of Jesus, right? And Jesus died for us. And it's interesting, when you look at this whole thing, it was in the same vicinity. And what ends up happening is, look what it says in verse 28. At that time... When David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. In other words, he kept sacrificing there. He's like, hey, this is good. The Lord you know, came down and I saw him put the sword away. I like this place, you know? And so he kept sacrificing there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar, the burnt offering which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time at the high places in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. It's interesting. Now, we're not sure, but there is a possibility that that angel moved over to Gibeon. I don't know for sure, but some people believe that he kind of stood over there because what God was saying is, I'm moving the high place on the altar in the temple to this place right here, this threshing floor right here, this place called Mount Moriah, the same place in Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. What it is is a picture of where Jesus would die. God was moving the temple. God had just worked out, to me this is amazing, all the details to get them the place where they would bring him so much glory. And I don't know about you, but if you don't see that as a story of grace, then you don't see. You know what's interesting? And I shared this with you guys before, but it always fascinates me. God took David's two greatest sins, And he turned them into, in one sense, David's greatest accomplishment. In that when David fell with Bathsheba, you know, that was a crazy sin. But a result of them coming together eventually was Solomon, right? And, And here we have David numbering the people. That was a greater sin in one sense. And a result of that was the property that would be purchased... In order that they might build the temple, God was able to take his two greatest sins and actually, in his amazing grace, bring glory to himself. I want to encourage you. I, I-, I pray we would have a healthy fear of God because, man, he will chasten. But I also pray that we would have a healthy understanding of the grace of God. You know, I don't know. Don't don't try to figure it out. Don't try to say, okay, well, he's going to do this and that. Don't. Just seek the Lord. And you watch what he can do even through knuckleheads like us. Let me leave you with just a few things. Number one, Satan stood up and David fell down, right? Because he wasn't wearing the armor. But what happened next was David looked up, confessed his sins. With that conviction in his heart, David looked up and grace came down. Why? Because we serve a God that, that chastens. And so you got to know that. We also serve a God who forgives. Amen. And we serve a God who somehow, some way is able to make all things, all things work together for good to those who love God and are on the call according to his purpose. And so let's let's worship him. Lord, we we just are so amazed that you are. Such an awesome God. You can give us, Lord, that grace. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel, El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.